Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. We are back. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk Radio. You want to join us? 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is the number. Thank you for joining us or rejoining us. In the second half of this hour, a different angle on the issue of the attacks, the uh, terrorist attack, excuse me, in Paris yesterday. Glenn Carl joins us in the second half. He had a career as a CIA clandestine services officer. He served from 85 to 2007 on four continents. And his last position was as deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats on the National Intelligence Council, the intelligence community's most senior position for strategic terrorism. He's worked extensively on terrorism, international economics, and foreign policy issues affecting the United States national security. He's also author of The Interrogator. He details his involvement and views on the Enhanced Interrogation Program. More than a pleasure to have on the show, Glenn Carl. Happy New Year. Glenn, you were on the show before, were you not? I was. It was a pleasure. Yes. Yes, I, I do. I do remember because I remember your book, and I remember us talking about uh, torture and interrogation methods. Uh, but this time, that's right. Yeah, but because you have worked on uh, and worked with strategic uh, terrorism and uh, have done analysis and held a senior position in that, let's talk about it. Um, first of all, the French police are hunting door to door for the terror suspects. There were three names, as you know, released: two brothers and one apparently, allegedly, is a stepbrother at 18. We're hearing the 18-year-old turned himself in. We're also hearing reports that the 18-year-old allegedly was in a classroom when these attacks took place and that there are witnesses to that effect. Uh, the, the question I would have for you is, have the French made some mistakes, dropped the ball here, because we're a day beyond this, and these uh, suspects, at least two of them, are still, or maybe three, if this man is not one of those three, a young man, uh, are still at large? Well, in, first, this is something, this issue is very close to my heart. I lived uh, 12 years in France and was partially educated there, and I, I lived when I was a graduate student probably not more than a block away from where the shootings occurred. So this is a, almost a personal uh, issue for me that way. Um, it's very easy for um, an official or certainly an average uh, citizen to uh, speak of an intelligence failure when something happens because obviously it's not supposed to, and if it happens, you could say that's a failure. But that's, I think, frequently um, not fair to the intelligence services uh, at question. The problem almost always is the following. Uh, the French knew about these two individuals, apparently, just as the Dutch knew about the man who eventually uh, murdered uh, Theo Van Gogh a few years ago. And the CIA and the FBI knew about a number of the 9-11 attackers. The problem, however, is to know when uh, these people will go become operational. Most of the time, almost always, these people are just uh, basically bums and losers uh, who talk tough. 
And you can't arrest someone for simply talking or, or having a hostile attitude. And so you watch them, and then you have to make the decision, well, when, when are they going to go operational? What do do? And uh, in this instance, you know, they, um, they seem to have waited too long, or they did not have more likely to be more fair to the police and the authorities. They didn't have a probable or justifiable cause. So that's, that's the problem. I don't know if I would call it a, a failure. It's a terrible problem, and any time someone is hurt and attacked, of course, of course, that's a failure, but, but not necessarily at all from the incompetence of the authorities. Do you think it was a mistake for them to release these names, or did they need to do that? And I say that because if, in fact, this 18-year-old was in class, then perhaps it was an assumption that it was two brothers and the youngest stepbrother uh, because they were three masked individuals. And, of course, although people could call up and give, and you would imagine it would be from the Muslim community, uh, that they would call up and say, hey, I think these are the guys that did it, uh, or these guys were talking about doing yeah, something it, it, like this. Yeah, this gets to uh, one of the difficult points in a democracy with, with, free, with the First Amendment or freedom of expression. Of course, the public uh, wants to know, and people may say what they wish, but the whole point of the terrorist really is it's more to affect you and me than it is even to kill the targets. And so it would be better from uh, a number of perspectives if these people were captured and sort of died in the dark, uh, never heard of, uh, or were simply uh, erased from the face of the earth, at least as far as any public uh, existence goes. Um, you know, media attention is the whole point of terrorism, really. Uh, to affect the average citizen beyond the, the immediate attack. Uh, but I, I don't know how one can do that in a free society. It, it is a problem of democracy. Yeah, well, well, I, 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 fully, uh, I fully agree. Um, the longer the time goes on, I know when a child is abducted, the less likely the child is found alive or found at all. So let's switch it to a terrorist. The longer the time goes on that you can't find a terrorist, is it likely they have fled France and they have said that they are Yemeni al-Qaeda? Uh, they said that to two different individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, well, do they have a support network and, you know, have they probably fled the country and won't be found again except, God forbid, uh, attacking somewhere in France or elsewhere again? Yeah. Well, of course, I don't know anything more than what you and I are reading in the, the broad media um, and I don't think the authorities know much more than, than we know, uh, although uh, I hope that they do. Um, I would be skeptical, however, uh, of a, an operational uh, link between these uh, two or three individuals and al-Qaeda in Yemen, we'll call it. Uh, I think they fit the profile and the general um, situation with respect to uh, jihadism in, in the world makes it far more likely that these are people who are inspired by uh, perceived grievance and, and uh, psychological and theological identification with an extreme version of Islam than they actually be members of an operational cell. Now, if, if I'm correct, that's a far more difficult problem actually to deal with because you'll have numbers of, and this is something that I and, and others, but certainly I... I assess would be the, the case uh, more than a decade ago, a dozen years ago, uh, what would be the main, the nature of the threat we're facing, rather than a hierarchical, organized, global uh, organization and movement, a series of inspired zealots from people who are malcontents. These two people actually apparently were born and raised in France. Now, they fit the profile perfectly I'm talking about, which means, although French, culturally they're sort of um, between two societies. 
They are not fully integrated or feel at home or identify with France or the West, and they no longer really are parts of their idealized and, and largely unknown uh, Islam from uh, their home uh, culture uh, generations before they were born. And so what happens to these people is they look for some sense of identity and, and meaning. What do American kids who are, who are malcontents, who are, who are uh, uprooted, do? They might go into the service to find a mission. They might um, become uh, thugs. Uh, they might uh, chase women or do drugs. Uh, these kids, these young men in France, do all of the same things. And if you're a Muslim in today's world, uh, some few numbers, very, very few, um, think that they can be a hero for a moment by doing the kind of heinous act that uh, they that we're dealing with uh, right now. When, when you talk about this, I mean, these guys were born in France. They were French, French nationals. So when you talk about the confusion, if you will, is it the confusion being perhaps, I would imagine, a first-generation um, uh, Frenchman uh, when their parents may have backgrounds in places like Yemen or, uh, you know, uh, Al- Algiers, which has Algeria. been... Yeah. Al- Algeria, which has been a huge... Uh, conflict between Algerians and the French and the way uh, the, the handling of uh, that, that country and those people. Um, is, is it also, because my when I was looking at the information this week, uh, in the past 24 hours, Islam is the second, uh, Muslims are the second largest religious population in France, Catholics being the first. They've been there almost 100 years, most Muslims, and the newest immigrants to France that are Muslim are from Northern Africa, and my understanding is what the French do is they, they give them visas and then they place them in these ghettos, if you will. Um, very uh, terrible living conditions. They put them all together. And I think that hurts the ability to assimilate. I'm not trying to blame France. I'm simply saying I think it feeds into this problem. Yeah, well, that, you, you get some of the description right. And a, a bit of it um, is a little too schematic and, and sort of unfair to the the dynamic that happens in France, but uh, 100 years isn't quite right. The Islamic immigration uh, into France all dates from after World War II and largely from 1950 on. So most of these people, um, the first generation, are now my uh, our parents' ages. These are retired people, you know, very simplistically put. And the, the next generation is the generation of these two young men who, who grew up in France but neither accepted by it fully nor identifying with it, and yet no longer being part of the country of their, their fathers and mothers. And France has never dealt with the kind of uh, melting pot immigration issues that, the United, that have defined the United States, nor has Europe, until uh, the last 40 years, really, or 50 years now. And they have been, since we are a nation of immigrants, where there has been, for a number of reasons, social mobility, that there's less today than there was, but there has been. Um, that has given sort of safety valves in many ways in the United States that haven't existed in, in France in this, in this context. And then you do have the dramatic differences between Christianity or Western norms and, and Islamic ones to create all sorts of tensions. If you look at the happy experience, the classic one in the United States, it, it's a three-generation process. The first generation arrives from wherever, and they don't speak, you know, they'll speak the home language, and they are actually Chinese or French or, or Russian or whatever they are. Their children are, are caught, or members of two worlds. They'll speak the language of their parents, and they will speak Native American English, and they'll go to schools, and, and they're, they are American, but they are not, they aren't quite the same way culturally as 
my family, which has been in the United States for 325 years. And then the third generation um, is, is completely integrated. France hasn't had time to go through that process, and the integration process is more difficult there. So the alienation and the separation that results uh, leads to, unfortunately, uh, terrible tension. Let's take some calls. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Carl's in Nashville, Line 4. Hey, Carl, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Question or comment? Carl? Thank you, Leslie. I'm here. Hey. I I have a comment. Um, Basically, what I wanted to call in was was about the attack, and I'm glad your, your guest was talking about how to, you know, take about three generations. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we're missing, and it's the, it's the big black elephant in the room, that you can have as many generations as you want. If your skin is not the color of the dominant race in that society, then you will always stick out no matter how you have assimilated yourself into that society. You're going to be black. You're going to be brown, and you can assimilate all you want. You can't change your skin color. Number two, I am just totally shocked at the, the lack of coverage of what happened in Yemen. I've been watching what happened in Paris all day yesterday, all day today, and I've been seeing hashtag I am Charlie everywhere, but I have yet to see one sign that says I am Yemen when 47 people died in a terrorist attack. In Yemen yesterday, 66 injured. I, I'm, I'm stunned by this. I, I shouldn't be, and this world just constantly reminds me that some lives, quote-unquote, matter than others. It's shameful. It, it really is. As horrible as the terrorist attack that happened in France yesterday that took 12 lives, I'm shocked and surprised that the other 37 to 40 lives that were lost in, in Yemen it's just gone basically unreported. Uh, to our guest, uh, please respond. Sure. Yeah, well, I think the gentleman makes some very interesting points and, and tragically, you know, relevant ones. Um, it's, it's, I lived, you know, I'm, I'm as, uh, you know, since I'm a quarter of French, I could pass for a Frenchman, really, when I was there. Um, you know, and I'm as white as the, traditional Frenchman. Uh, however, I, I went to school with uh, my family with Arabs a lot, and, and they um, felt acutely the uh, part of the point that the gentleman who just called in made, that no matter uh, how they uh, would act, you know, they would stand out and would be held apart. So, uh, that, that has been true. Uh, there's, there's another truth, however, which, which the gentleman didn't talk about, which is, happily, uh, which is a happier one which is, um, for all its problems, and every society has great problems, uh, France does not have to deal directly with the horrible legacy of slavery that defines America to this day so much. And so um, non-whites, blacks and and Vietnamese, have been the two dominant, uh, and and then uh, North Africans, the three dominant uh, non-white groups in France, have not had to deal... Uh, with uh, institutionalized, unconscious assumptions and, and cultural norms that America continues to struggle with some. 
So in, in a way, I'm a bit more optimistic than the gentleman calling in uh, that, uh, that if one assimilates culturally, uh, one can be accepted, um, I think, uh, despite one's, uh, how one looks, you know, the color of one's skin in France. Uh, that uh, isn't the case yet because uh, so many of the people have arrived so recently and have different uh, cultural norms and have been not formally put into uh, enclaves, but but uh, de facto that has occurred. And, uh, and so also, I'm, when, I'm when both, you when I you have the fact that they when you have the fact that the women can't wear burkas in public, girls can't wear uh, cover their heads uh, in school, which unfortunately led to some families uh, who who you know, came from other countries taking their children, girls, uh, out of schools. Um, is, is there a forced uh, assimilation, a forced uh, nationalism in France? And is this an example of why France did that? We're going to take a break. When we come back, our guest will answer that and more. You want to join us, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Glenn Carl is our guest, a former CIA clandestine services officer uh, on four continents. Uh, the latest position he held was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats. As he said, he spoke in France. He's also He lived in France, uh, was educated there for some of his life. He is author of The Interrogator, detailing his involvement and views on the Enhanced Interrogation Program. We talked to him about torture before. Today, we talk to him about these terrorist attacks and the manhunt that continues in the country of France. Check him out uh, on the website, Glenn Carl, G-L-E-N-N-Carl, C-A-R-L-E dot com. And once again, on Amazon.com, the book, The Interrogator, is available. Pick a copy up. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome. Welcome back. Only True Democracy in Talk Radio. Glenn Carl is our guest, as I mentioned his last position was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats on the National Intelligence Council, the intelligence community's most senior position for strategic terrorism. He is author of the book, The Interrogator. Carl, uh, Glenn, excuse me, sorry, switching your names around there, Glenn. Uh, Glenn, uh, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, sure, thanks. Uh, you, you know, since you lived in France and since you've worked, though, with, with uh, you know, regard to terrorism and terror suspects, what more can the French do than go door to door hunting for these terror suspects? And, you know, if you had to put money on this, how likely is it they'll be successful? Because there are many saying these guys are long gone. Yeah, boy, those are $64,000 questions, aren't they? Um, yeah, I say uh, people often ask me for, for years, people would ask me, why haven't you guys found bin Laden yet? And I would give an answer that would seem to be flippant, and, and I didn't really intend it to be so, but, you know, I simply said, well, have you ever played hide-and-seek with your kids in your own house? And I could never find my own kids. Um, it, and then you, when you deal with this, something the size of a country, uh, it, it can be very difficult to find uh, someone on the run like this. So I, I don't know. I do know that the French are um, have an excellent domestic service. And uh, you know, I've worked with them, and, and they, they work... Uh, very competently to keep uh, tabs on people who pose threats. So they're, they're, they are as uh, capable as any service, I think, in the world of finding someone like this, but, but I don't know that that means that they will. Um, in, in America's case, years before 9-11, several uh, colleagues of mine were, uh, were murdered, assassinated, just outside the uh, entrance, at the entrance of the CIA headquarters in 1990 two or three, and um, within minutes, the authorities responded. We had security people at the perimeter, and nonetheless, 
the man was able to drive from the CIA headquarters to uh, Dulles Airport, get on a plane, and fly off to Pakistan, unknown and undetected. And it took uh, several years for us to catch up to him and then and capture him and bring him back for trial, and he was uh, executed, I believe. But, but even in that instance, um, it's very similar, actually, to what happened in, in Paris. Uh, it's, it's passingly, surpassingly difficult to find someone who uh, is on the run. So I, I don't know. All right, Glenn, thank you, my fellow native Bostonian. Glenn Carl, check out his website, G-L-E-N-N-C-A-R-L-E.com. Get his book at Amazon.com, The Interrogator. Glenn Carl, his career was a CIA clandestine services officer on four continents. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that under-deliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time, you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.